Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Revelation again, chapter 2. We won't be spending a lot of time in Revelation here, but that's where we're going to start this morning. I especially appreciate your prayers this morning. Um, this this message, um, I felt direction earlier in the week than I usually do, um, and had a number of um, things uh, on my heart, and um, yet as the week went on and over these last couple days as I've tried to organize my thoughts, it's been really hard. And um, this morning I feel a little extra um, discombobulated, or whatever the appropriate word is. We're going to read Revelation 2, the first four verses here. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This leaving of the first love, this is more the idea of uh, chief or first of all love than a timeline. It's not, not necessarily talking about who or what you loved first of all um, in time, because for most of us that would be self. Um, time-wise, our first love was ourselves. It's talking about the, the word first here means first in position, um, not in time. It's the chief, the first of all, above all else, not necessarily before all else in that sense. So this is not a you've moved on from loving the thing you did originally, but you've stopped holding dear what is the dearest. The King James translation says, I have somewhat against thee. In today's English, I have somewhat against that rendering. Um, the somewhat is in italics um, because it's not there in the, in the Greek writing. The translators put it there to make the English flow better, to work better, which is fine. Um, but to my millennial ears, when I hear somewhat, I think kind of. It's somewhat warm today. It's kind of warm today. Um, what's being said here, if you're going to use a, a word in there to make the sentence flow, um, would be more something or this thing. Uh, I was looking at my interlinear Bible and it says, But I have against thee that thy love the first thou didst leave. So this is not the church being told, You've got a lot going for you, but there's a little something wrong, which is maybe the way we can tend to think of it. God is telling them, I have this against you. Question. 
Do you want God to have something against you? Now that may that may sound rhetorical. Uh, ha ha! The preacher is asking a question that we all know the answer to, so that he can make his point. Right? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you to stop thinking about tomorrow's to-do list or whatever is in your head competing with with my voice right now. Stop. Set that aside. Quiet all the other voices and ask yourself, truly and honestly, do I want God to have something against me? This immediately leads to more questions. What are the ramifications of God having something against me? And what will cause God to have something against me? And my focus today is on that second question. What will cause God to have something against me? Turn back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to start reading at verse 34. Matthew 22, I'm in the wrong chapter, Matthew 22, 34 through, we'll read just through 38. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So in Revelation 2, there's so much the church at Ephesus was doing well. We read a lot of commendation before that condemnation. God had something against them. They had left their primary love. Here in Matthew 22, Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all you've got. First and greatest. It comes before and above all else. Everything flows from it. Everything is affected by it. What is your first love? Now people are passionate about lots of things. And we could look around and say some people's first love is whatever. um, Their favorite team and their favorite sport or their favorite NASCAR driver or um, their hobby. Um, His first love is fishing. Whatever. That is, that would, I shouldn't say that's not right. That is rarely right. One's first love affects everything they do and say, and think. It permeates their life to the point that nothing is unaffected by that love. It is the thing that influences everything, every decision, small and great. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Now, if you have passions that grow to a certain point, 
they have an effect on that first love. We'll talk about that a little more later. But your first love is not the thing that you enjoy doing when you have spare time. Your first love is the thing that affects every little thing you do. 2 Corinthians 10, we will read 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. These verses, we have the knowledge of God in focus, but it holds true for the love of God also. We use God's weapons to attack and tear down strongholds, fortresses in our life that stand against God and our love for him. 1 John 2 Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We will look at that verse more in a few minutes. But that, I think we, how do I want to put it? I know I have looked at that verse from kind of a skewed perspective um, for quite a while. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think I have tended to think of that as um, God's love is not in me, as in working out, etc. If I love the world, there's no room for God's love in my life to affect those um, that I rub shoulders with. But it's it's not um, maybe a way to to get our head around that would be to say, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. My love for God is not there if I am a lover of the world. It's not that it crowds out the ability for me to be a container for his love. It crowds out the ability for me to love him. Psalm 42, David said, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, the man after God's own heart. King David, he had a love for God. Paul, in Galatians 2, gives a description of what the his first love, God being the primary love in his life, what that looks like. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're worldly people. Worldliness is a problem for us. That includes me. I am a worldly person. I don't want to be. I'm taking steps to counter that. But as I sat and thought this week about how I make my decisions, what influences my life, I am just a pretty worldly person. Is the solution to that to cut the world out of your life? 
Is the solution to that to simply clamp down on the world and and the things of of this life um, crowding in? There's there's some truth in that. But the solution for it is to fill up your life with what it's supposed to be filled with. The solution to my worldliness problem is to have that true first love for God. We'll touch on that again in a little bit. Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Some of the best known verses in the Bible, I would imagine. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, this being the, at this point, 11 disciples. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, go make disciples. I want you to think about your vision for making a disciple this morning. So that's a job God has given you. Go make disciples. So think about... Your job now. Your job is go make disciples for Christ. We could think of this as you're going into one of these um, one of these unreached people groups, one of these islands where they've basically been uncontacted, and you're going to go in and you're going to teach these people about God, and you are going to make disciples. You don't actually have to go to an island where people haven't uh, interacted with people from outside of their tribe. Um, You can go into an American city and find people who, when you ask, do you know who Jesus is or do you know who Jesus was, they will say no. So this is the kind of person I want you to think about right now. And this person is brought the truth of the gospel and they come to God and they turn their life over now you're told make disciples you're told disciple this person uh, shape them help them be uh, be the tool God uses to help them be a disciple of his I want you to think I'm not going to give you I don't think I'm going to give you any any examples, any any points here because it's going to be a lot more powerful if these are the things that come out of your head. What are the minimums that you're going to teach them? What are the things that you are going to say, I have to cover these things. I have to show them this. I have to open up this passage and show them this in their life, what it means to be a practical disciple of God. What are the things they do and don't do? Just those minimum things that you go, I'm going to be with this person for the next however long, and, and they really need to get this. If they're going to have a successful walk with, with God and they're going to be his disciple, they really need to get this point. Those just kind of... Those, uh, the bottom floor threshold, we have to cover this. We have to get into this from the truth of God's word. What are those things that you would 
you would take to them. And then what are the practical aspects of that? Um, what are the things that you say, we don't do this because it would drag us down. We do this because it lifts us up. What are those things? Think about them. You don't need to say them out loud, but think about a couple actual real life things that you would take to someone. Now think about the ultimate. You've got a couple years to work with this person. And they are just, they are on fire for God. And and they are just, their their heart is, is like Play-Doh or, yeah. I mean, they're, they're just ready. They're sucking up. When you show them, this is what the Bible says, they just take it in and it makes an impact on their life. What are those ultimate things that you, you would see and say, this is the ultimate that they can attain to? This is, this is the course that, that I'm going to help them find. What are a couple of those things? Ephesians 2 says this, uh, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. So, we're his disciples, we're his workmanship. He's working in us. Christ is working in us. We're, not to sound callous about it, but we're his project. He's putting his time and effort into us to shape us into what we can be. Second Timothy 2 says, we are also workmen. So we're called, part of our work is to be a tool God can use to make disciples. We are his workmanship. We are workmen. Think about those, those things, that those attributes, those things you were thinking of for that disciple you're discipling. The one that you're helping, you're walking alongside, you're fulfilling that great commission with. You were supposed to have thought of some real life practical things that you were gonna you were gonna try to help instill in them from God's word. Practical things. That disciple is you. The first disciple you make is the one in your skin. Are you doing those things? Are you even reaching what you just said or the bare minimum things you you would want to cover with someone? Are you attaining to that? Are you, well, are you reaching for that? What about the ultimate? What about those things that, that you put up there in your mind of this person is on fire for God and they could reach to this? Are you reaching for that?
for me, that hits really close home. Because when I go through that exercise, I think of the amount of prayer that person would do. The ultimate disciple of Christ. That person is just, they're talking to God all the time. What's my prayer life like and how do I prioritize it? Do I really talk to God that way? So those things you thought of as the bare minimum for a disciple, are you attaining those or reaching for those and those ultimate disciple goals? Do you want to be a bare minimum disciple or do you want to be the ultimate disciple of Christ? Here's a bit of truth for you. There are no bare minimum disciples. That's not how discipleship works. Here's a practical question. What do you really love most? What are you seeking? And I'm not talking, I can be a fairly philosophical guy. I'm not talking in the abstract or philosophical sense, um, as in I am a seeker of truth, or um, I'm just looking for happiness. I hope you're a seeker of truth. I know you're a seeker of happiness. I'm asking you down here, on on the gritty gravel path of life where you actually do things what are you really seeking and so maybe maybe some variations of that question other ways to phrase it would be what do you really want what are you dreaming about having what fuels your hope for the future What's capturing your attention the most? What are you focusing your reading on? What are you searching the internet for? What are you spending your time and money on? What are you making plans to pursue? Or I could ask it in the reverse. What desired thing or person is fueling your depression and cynicism because as much as you want it or them it seems unattainable what are you seeking your answers will tell you what you love love always seeks it's the very nature of love to seek what's beloved whether the beloved is a human Song of Solomon 7 gives a picture of the seeking of love when it comes to another person. Money, 1 Timothy 6, talks about that. We read 1 John 2.15 about just seeking otherworldly stuff. Deuteronomy 4.29 shows that the person who loves God seeks him. We cannot help but seek what we love. And we can't help growing disillusioned or bitter or hopeless if we believe we can't have what we love. Pursuit, that seeking, that chasing, that pursuing, that's the mark of real passion. That's why King David wrote things like in Psalm 27, one thing I've asked of God, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. 
um, or in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. When he composed those songs, he was consumed with a love for, a desire for God, and that love compelled him to seek his beloved. Um, In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, the love of Christ constrains us. Um, The Greek word there is something like cynico. It's translated in the English Standard Version as controls us. Uh, The New King James says compels us. The King James says constrains us. What Paul meant is that the love of Christ, it, it... Urged and even forced him into action to to pursue what had captured his heart. Love compels, controls, constrains us. Love pursues. Love has to act because love and word is not true love. True love always produces action. 1 John 3 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Have we lost our first love? That's where we started this morning, there in Revelation 2. Not we. Have I lost my first love? Have you lost your first love? The first indicator that we've lost our our passion for God, that he's no longer that, that primary love in our life, those first indicators aren't things like uh, following false teaching or or falling into immorality or, or even just outright um, I had the official word for it backsliding, falling, apostasy um, those are not really the first indicators that you have lost your first love in fact you could even still be serving Christ and enduring hardship with some measure of faithfulness that the observers commend Remember the Ephesian church there in in Revelation 2. They were patiently enduring evil adversity. They were still toiling away. Those looking on could commend them for, for them sticking to it. But they were no longer burning with desire. They were no longer zealous. They were no longer earnestly chasing after, seeking Christ. The love of Christ no longer constrained them, compelled them, controlled them. It's a serious problem. What we love most drives our pursuits. If Jesus is not what we love the most, we will be spending our energies, our resources elsewhere, no matter how orthodox we seem in what we say and do. What are you really seeking? What we do when we're given a choice, what we do, what we what we choose to pursue, what what we want to seek, um, those are all indicators of what has captured our affection. Is the love of Christ controlling, compelling, constraining us, or is it something else? Are we serving Christ out of an affection for Him that makes it hard not to? Or are we serving Christ out of some sort of weary, dreary obligation? Are we serving Christ because it's the right thing to do? Or because I can't help but do what the one I love wants done? 
Do we no longer do the works of faith like we used to? Not because our focus or calling has changed, but we just don't have it in us like we used to. In Revelation 2, right after the verses we read, Jesus called the Ephesians to repent. That's not just merely a warning. That is the gospel. Repentance is an escape from the bondage of sin, whatever it is. The very fact that repentance is possible because of what Christ has done, that is the gospel, the good news. There is no question of whether we will seek out what we love. The question is, what are we really seeking? Our lives, our works, they're the the whistleblowers because they tell us what we love. And if we don't love what we're supposed to love, God has provided a way to escape from bondage, to return to joy, that repentance. Deuteronomy 4.29 But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. The author G.K. Chesterton wrote this, The moment we care for anything deeply, the world, that is, the other miscellaneous interests, becomes our enemy. The moment you love anything, the world becomes your foe. The moment we care for anything deeply, the world, that is, other miscellaneous interests, becomes our enemy. The moment you love anything, the world becomes your foe. The world tempts us every day to leave the greater love for lesser lusts. True love, true love fights. Chesterton also said, to love a thing without wishing to fight for it is not love at all, it is lust. Love is active, lust is passive. So if a man has stopped fighting for his marriage, he won't fight against the lure of adulterous flirting because he's driven by the passive, the, the passivity of lust, not the earnestness of love. True love must be fought for. This is why to love the world is to lose the love of God. It's a horrible trade, but we do it all the time. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but is of the world. Misdirected love is the root of all worldliness. Worldliness will suck the, um, the sap out of our, our greatest love until it's just a dried up branch. In the 1600s, a young Scottish minister named Henry Scougal wrote this to a friend. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Pleasures never lie. We can fool ourselves and others in many ways, but pleasure is that that whistleblower um, of my heart. The author John Piper said, Pleasure is the measure of our treasure. Pleasure is the measure of our treasure. We know that what we truly treasure is what we truly love. Jesus said it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
What constrains you? What affects everything you think, say, and do? There's a book called The Christian Atheist. I occasionally threaten to use it as an outline for a series of sermons. Um, The title with its subtitle is The Christian Atheist, When You Believe in God But Live As If He Doesn't Exist. Chapter 1 is When You Believe in God But Don't Really Know Him. Chapter 9 is When You Believe in God But Pursue Happiness at Any Cost. Are we Christian atheists today? Do we believe in God but not love him? Do we believe in God but pursue our happiness outside of him? I heard a quote earlier this week um, from a, a writer. He was not talking about spiritual things, but we... We talk about how vision and passion are hard to pass on. Um, You can pass on education. you You can teach someone how things work. But it's really hard to pass on passion. It's really hard to pass on vision. He said this. Passing on passion is basically just showing people what's great. If I fear that my children or whoever I'm rubbing shoulders with, but my children spring immediately to mind, aren't, I'm not seeing, if if I fear that they're not having a passion for the things of God, which I guess mine are young enough that it's a little different. But if that fear is in my heart, what's the remedy? The remedy is to be passionate about God, to see his greatness, because if I show them what is great, they will be passionate about it too, because it is great. It works in other things. It works, you have the the gearhead dad who just loves, you know, old Detroit muscle cars. Usually that gets passed on, because he's showing them what's great. He shows them all those great aspects about it. And they can't help but get excited because they see the greatness. Am I that way with God? That my children, the people who walk behind me, just can't help but see how great he is? Do you love or do you lust? One we pursue, the other one we take when we can get it. David, that verse we, those verses we read from Psalm 42, David said, the way that a deer pants for that water, that's the way my, my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for God. What's your first love? Can we have a song, please? <clears throat> 